Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now... So welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist podcast and video for those that are watching by video. Uh, And you know, for those that listen all the time, one of our things that we do is to bring together people that have unique and special insights about creating wealth and preserving wealth. And our our topic today is going to be within that because we're dealing with a lot of... um, uncertainty in our current lifestyle and market with the pandemic, with the election, with folks going in and out of, um, you know, our domestic policy, our international policy, and what does it happen on the market? And, and timely as of very recent history is the gain stop phenomena of what is going on. And, and, uh, uh, my guest, Jonathan DeYo, I, you know, I apologize. I didn't ask you ahead of time if I was saying that correctly. So, okay, good. Um, you know, we, uh, I think it will, because of some of the things that we're going to talk about, that may be kind of timely in um, the idea of how he advises his, his, uh, his companies and the, I mean, the, the uh, people that he works with and things like that. Um, because, you know, there is, um, for folks that are synth- that are less emotional, and this is something that I talk about in the book, it's not making investment decisions based off of emotion and being very objective, having a criteria, having a, a purpose to the way that you make your decisions. And that's a big part of what we're going to talk about today. So let me introduce you to Jonathan so you understand why I'm so excited about having him as a guest on the Compassionate Capitalist Show. So Jonathan has been a California-based financial advisor for 25 years. He managed investments at a variety of Wall Street companies before finding his own independent financial planning firm in 2002. He and the Mindful Money team work one-on-one with 300 families and foundations. He is the author of the best-selling book, Mindful Money. And Jonathan passionately educates businesses, individuals, and parents to manage the anxiety of the unknown and focus on the financial factors they can control. He's been interviewed for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and is a contributor for the Business Insider and Huffington Post. One of his messages is, uh, your, to my audience, is they do not have to choose between tremendous financial outcome and living a happy, meaningful life. You can have it all. So welcome to the show, Jonathan. How are you? Well, thanks, Karen. I'm uh, actually really excited to have this conversation. We had that nice pre-talk and uh, really enjoyed it. Yep, absolutely. So, all right. So one of the things I wanted to just get it, because I, th- I thought it was really interesting when we did have our chat before, is um, that you've, it, you've invested as an angel in the past, I mean, our focus today is primarily on the wealth creation and preservation through diversification, which is one of my things when it comes to compassionate, trying to compel people to explore compassionate capitalism and diversify in asset classes. And so I know that's going to be sort of part of our our topic, but tell, tell your story and connect the dots for your 
expertise as a registered advisor and how you came across, you know, how you have embraced this idea of, um, of diversification as well as, you know, the whole concept of mindful money. And, and you know, we'll dig into the specific, specifics of, of, you know, other things as well, but uh, talk a little bit about that. So uh, just a little bit of background. When I was about three years old, my dad lost his business. And I think by the time I was, I don't know, seven or eight, we lost all of the family real estate. Uh, and, and neither parent after that had any real income until I was about 16. So I became very early on, very, very interested in financial stability and financial success. You know, I read books on it, business analysis, investing. I was always fascinated by entrepreneurs and small business people. So by the time I went to college, I was, you know, I was kind of bored of finance. And so I had to kind of, I had come up with something else. So I started studying, started out with literature, tried psychology, ended up with philosophy and religious studies and went on and studied, uh, you know, graduated with a philosophy degree uh, and went on to graduate school. And this, this deep interest in what, what's important to us led me to be a seminarian I dropped out of seminary and became a Buddhist academic. So I started studying specifically Tibetan Buddhism and Tibetan phenomenology, probably not the topic of this, uh, of this call. Wow. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then, and then at the, at the time, my first wife uh, said, you know, Jonathan, it's, it's my time to go to school. And I was like, okay, that seems reasonable. I've been going to school for a lot. You've been supporting me. What can I do? So I dropped out of a Buddhist studies program and I didn't, I mean, there's not really a, there's no job that's, custom built for a, for a dropout from a Buddhist studies program. So I decided to go back to what I had learned early in life and started working for Morgan Stanley. And I did, you know, Morgan Stanley, I did Payne Weber, I did Smith Barney, I did a bunch of different companies before I started my own. Um, and then you sort of have to go alongside of this whole conversation, the, the new study of behavioral economics. So that was yeah. about, okay. that was about 20 years ago, right? And, and there have been two um, uh, Nobel Prizes to psychologists for economics because of this concept of, of uh, behavioral economics or behavioral finance. And what I learned was that the traditional path of economics treats men and women as rational animals. You know, like we, we, we gather a bunch of data, we, we, we sort through that data, we make really good decisions with all the data in mind. But that's not true. I mean, just think about the last big decision you made. It's not true. That's not how we think. So that's what behavioral finance talks about. But what behavioral finance tells us is there's no, you know, you have this issue, you have all these biases, you have all these cognitive and emotional issues that keep you from making rational decisions. Good luck. But they don't give us a, they don't give us a tool to overcome that. And that's why I was like, well, monks, Buddhist monks for 2,500 years have been managing their own emotional responses to things. I think there's something in that when we talk about investing, when we talk about our finances, when we talk about our relationships with others, there's something in that mindfulness that can be applied. And that's what we brought together in Mindful Money. Okay, right, sure. So, you know, that's um, <clears throat> one of the things because, you know, quite frankly, as we have seen, you know, folks, you and, you and I in the age group that we, we are, is that there, whether it's the very nature of investments, to a lot, to a large degree, is speculative, right? Real estate, stock market, and even angel investing can lose all of their value based on factors that are outside the control 
of the investor. And as I mentioned at the start of the show, you know, we've had a lot of turmoil that has affected the stock market. It's the international policy changes, domestic turmoil, even the protests over many issues, the pandemic. You know, so um, on one hand, wealth or the hoarding of wealth is viewed as many as a negative because of the this clear wealth gap in the in the United States that we've sort of the pandemic has shown a, a spotlight on. And on the other hand, government at every level is striving, trying to bring the floor up to bring those that have not had the same opportunities or have been negatively impacted by the economic shifts to have an opportunity to create wealth. You have, you talk a lot about true sources of happiness. So why does this matter when you're investing? How should we think about this wealth creation in the context of this social fabric within, you know, in the future as we're looking forward? How That's kind of a deep question, but you know, how would you, what's your perspective on that or how would you address that? So I think, I think that there's two questions in there. I think, I think one question is a question of wealth creation in, in a very, you know, unequal world. Uh, and what does that mean? What are the elements there? And then the, I think there's a second question. And the second question is how, how do you base your financial plan or your financial future on a foundation that you know will lead to uh, your own, your family's, you know, your version of well-being and happiness. Okay. Very good. <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted to know. <laughs> okay. So let's, I'm going to take the second one first. Okay. Uh, and the second one is really, is that question of happiness. And so in, in the book, Mindful Money, it splits into three different parts. The first part of the book, we talk about a lot of the illusions out there about finance that people have. Um, and there's a lot of them and they come up all the time. I actually sort of break them down into eight and so people can talk about, uh, read the book and, and learn about those kinds of things. The entire middle section of the book, we go into the psychological studies, the uh, long-term surveys of, you know, National Bureau of Economic Research, the surveys they've done of, of people that you go into this concept of gross national happiness. You go into what are the things that actually create meaning and value in our lives? And it's important because I, th I don't think anyone... If you don't study philosophy and you don't study psychology, you're not going to ever come, come up with some of these studies and, and realize that, hey, there's actually a short list of things that lead to a more meaningful life. The, the things that we all know about, right? Taking care of your health, um, learning, constant learning, lifelong learning, uh, experiences, uh, relationships, uh, finding meaningful work, not just working for more money, but doing something that you enjoy with people you enjoy doing it, right? So there are things that we can do to actually lead to happiness. Sometimes buying the bigger house, getting the better paycheck, driving the nicer car, those things are nice in a moment, but then they fade in terms of our well-being and our actual happiness. And so mm -hmm. by, by, by making decisions in a plan, trade-offs in your financial plan, after you have an understanding about what makes you happy, I think that's how you get to well-being and happiness in your lifetime and realize it's not a, you don't get to say, okay, this will make me happy tomorrow. I'm going to have it. It's a slog. It's a slog for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. You have to put in the effort, put in the work uh, to get something out of it. So is that, is that a good summary of the first one? Yeah, I think so. Right. That's uh, right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so the, the second one is this concept of wealth in a, in a world that is so unequal. Um, and there's a, there's an enormous amount of data on this. I think there's far more narrative around it 
than there is data. I think there's a lot of people telling a lot of stories without actually looking at the data itself. Um, so there's two pieces I think that's, that are really important. The first piece, and this is where I think we're gonna have a lot to talk about, is the source of wealth. And the second piece is how people who have wealth show up in the world. So in terms of the source of wealth, there's this kind of popular opinion that if you're wealthy, you took that wealth away from other people. And I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm saying that I know a lot of people that are wealthy and I don't think a single one of them took anything from anybody else. You know, they had, they were, they were doctors that saved. They were small business people that provided jobs and saved. Um, some, you know, I know a guy, a good friend of mine, he, he worked in a, in a manufacturing facility. He was a manager in a manufacturing facility that went under. So he didn't have a job and he was like, what can I do? He bought a, um, he bought a van and he bought some carpet cleaning equipment and he, that was his first truck. And so he went around and he, he sold carpet cleaning, cleaning services. He did it on notepads. You know, he had those note cards, three by five note cards was his schedule. It was in his pocket. He pulled it out. He had a clip on it. This is Monday. This is Tuesday. This is, you know, and he had, this is my schedule for the whole week. I, I've got to schedule out for four months. He, all of his savings, all of his wealth came from cleaning people's carpets. Right. And, you know, he did very, very well. Another guy is a painter, you know, and he painted a lot of homes. He had six or seven trucks and, and eventually he, he that builds wealth. Right. So that they didn't take it away from anybody. They did something they saved. And so there's a, the usual path to wealth isn't inheriting it. It isn't like 75, 80% of wealth is, is first year or first generation wealth. Yeah. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've so seen those statistics. Uh, um, Millionaire Next Door has an old book, has a lot of that kind of statistics. Exactly. And those are great. Those are great statistics. So, so the first thing is changing that mentality and realizing that the people that got wealthy didn't do it hurting other people. They actually did it helping other people, providing a service or something that people wanted. And by being productive and innovative and working hard, uh, they were able to save and save and build wealth. They owned something. And then they took some savings and they invested to own other things. That right. is the source of wealth. Ownership is the source of wealth, hands down, period. Whether that's you own your own enterprise or you own, you know, the great shares in the great companies in the United States and the world, or you invest, you know, as an angel or you invest in real estate. If you own stuff, that's how you build wealth. The, the second piece is how you show up in the world, right? There is, and this this actually disturbs me a little bit. There there is wealth out there that walls itself off, that fights against any kind of tax changes, that refuses to give money to support people that are hurting, um, and that wealth exists. And there's no question about it. I I don't know what the mechanism is to, you know, impel them or compel them to make changes, but I'd say there's a lot more wealth that shows up in a different way. That, mm -hmm. that is open, that embraces community, that, that, that gives back directly, that doesn't fight against higher taxes and, and it, it wants to actually make a better world, a more equal world. And, and yeah. I think that there's some of the most wealthy among us are that way. And so, yeah, I think we have to be careful of the narrative. I really do. Well, it's sort of like when you get into these philosophical debates about capitalism and capitalism gets a bad name. And so you come up with like, in my case, compassionate capitalism, to try to compel people not just to buy and sell things, but to invest in entrepreneurs for innovation, create jobs, right? Angel investors, like that original term where it came from, 
were wealthy people back, like way back in the day that were benefactors to the arts. And they were, it started with arts because, and they never didn't know that they were going to make money off of this artist or this play or stuff like that. They were just doing it because they wanted that benefit in the world, if you will. Right. And then eventually it, you know, became the, what we, what we know of today. And so then you have the conscious capitalism, right? So they're all trying to, um, and uh, uh, I actually had a, I'm going to be interviewing him next week for a future show and it was um, cultivate capitalism. And uh, it's a venture capital fund that wants to help, you know, second tier or the lesser markets to grow their, you know, entrepreneur ecosystem, right? And so, you know, we're all taking this word that has mixed reviews, right? Because the capitalism that you talked about where you're providing a service, you're providing something, you're, you're building a business that creates wealth for you and your family. And, to, you know, as long as you don't flitter that money away, right? So you, and then we'll get into your, like, like the wealth, preservation side of that in just a second um as long as you're not flitting it away you can build upon that for other things and that's good capitalism the bad capitalism so we need to come up with a different term maybe just call it I don't, hoarding <laughs> i don't know but it's like the bad bad version of that are the ones that make it and then don't um want to share their wealth at all in any way and don't feel any sense of obligation for paying it forward or, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and so, uh, so with that, let's, um, let's talk about this where when it comes to investing as you create wealth and there's formulas on what percentage you should do and this and that kind of the other thing that, you know, that, you know, is, is of what it is, but whatever that number is, for the stage, and I think when we talk about the haves and the have-nots, it's really eliminating the obstacles or the barriers for them to get a seat at the table. And then once they get the seat at the table, it's up to them, you know, to put the blood, sweat, and equity to create, be all that they can be, right? And so, um, and and live within the means and then invest. I mean, you hear all the stories of like a, a school teacher that saved until she could you know, this, that, and the other, or she invested smartly in sort of the stuff that you talk about, not emotionally, right? And so she's, and, and later on, even though she was a school teacher, she, she, at the end of her days, she had great wealth that she was able to do a lot of stuff with. So pro the problem that you have in a lot of that is this fear and emotion seem to be a big driver of investor actions and reactions, right? And it's the, um, and even when it comes to somebody that does come in, that's the reason why you hear all these people that win the lottery and then four months later, or four years later, six years later, they're broke or very wealthy athletes that end up, you know, at, in the, when they're no longer able to do the things that they did to create their wealth and they don't have that around, right? And so there's a certain amount of fear that they have of, um, of or uh, self-image that makes them have to feel like I got to I got to do something with it before it's all gone because they've never been able to retain wealth in the past or they came up in a in a, 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 a an environment that didn't understand how to how to retain wealth or invest wealth 
right? So that's like the emotion side that could be a big driver of it. But there's also this fear and this illusion of get rich where people are always looking for the hot stock, right? Or, you know, they try to get in on IPOs, which don't have any kind of foundation and they immediately drop, you know, two weeks after they launch or this whole thing with uh, uh, digital coins, ICOs, right? Make a killing in the stock market, you know. So, so you had some very interesting ideas about the nature of the stock market these days and what you what's happened over time. So let me put the floor back over to you to talk a little bit about those concepts and those ideas of, of, not, of not having fear and emotion dictate your strategy. And then also the way people have a perspective of investing in a fund versus you know, direct stocks and the nature of the stock market these days. So there's that, that was a there was an awful lot in there. So let me let me let me see if I can peel something back here. Um, I, I think there was a question about you know what what are the what are the basic processes that one could have to invest in a way that would protect wealth rather than risk it terribly. Um, and so let, let's let's go with that. Let's go with that. Um, it, th- there's a there's a fundamental driver in markets, and we've seen this over the last couple of months. You know, coming to a coming to a crazy fruition in the last few days with um, the likes of a, of a GameStop. I'm not a I'm not a shareholder. I, I I look at it as entertainment. I'm not. I don't participate in this at all. Um, not even in the battle back and forth about they're shorting it. We're going to hurt them. That I'm not getting involved in any of that stuff. It's just um, it's it's a phenomenon we have these days with the power of the internet. So yeah. Well, and it's it's. So the phenomena of there's this thing that's spiking upwards, I need to get involved. That's existed forever. Like that, oh, sure. that thing has existed forever. There's a flavor of this that's a little bit different, but the outcome is gonna be the same. Either GameStop is worth the price or it is not worth the price. Mm-hmm. Yep. If you sink a bunch of money in it and discover it's not worth the price, it will collapse and you will lose that money. If you don't sink a bunch of money in it and it goes up and it's worth the price, well then you did, you've missed out on some upside. And that's that's the nature of investing. And so there's there's a phrase, it might be Buffett, it might be uh, some manager, I don't know, that says, if you wanna if you want to get rich, you concentrate. If you wanna protect your wealth, you diversify. I diversify all day long. Like I, I have angel uh, investments myself. If any one of those ever hit, it's gonna diversify, be diversified immediately. I have, I have a fundamental process that's based on academic evidence that tells me to do three things. And okay. I would, say, I would say follow these three things, and you will ultimately be okay. It's not that you'll never lose money, but it will recover because one company or one sector can go away, but the entire economy cannot go away. Mm-hmm. If 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 we no longer a good example, if we no longer drive with horse and buggy, we'll start driving with cars. If we no longer drive with cars, there'll be flying cars. If we don't ever do that, we'll just use teleportation. So there'll be some industry somewhere that gets us from one place to another. So the three things are, you know, plan appropriate asset allocation. What that means is you understand your trade-offs, you understand how much you can save, you understand what you need to get out of that savings and those portfolios in the future. And that tells you basically what kind of risk you need to take so it's 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 risk based on plan and an asset asset allocation to develop that risk. Second item 
in every asset class, in every category, as broad a diversification as you can possibly get. If the U.S. has 5,000 companies, don't just buy the 500 biggest. Buy all 5,000, okay? Don't buy 500, buy 5,000. Buy them all. Um, own them all. Broad, 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 broad diversification. You'll never, you know, diversification is, is beautiful because, you know, you'll, you'll never make a killing, but you'll never get killed. That's the benefit, right? Um, and then the last thing is, and this is really simple as well, regular rebalancing. The, the beauty of regular rebalancing is at some point, having nothing to do with the decision you've made, something that you own will have done really, really well relative to everything else that you've owned, right? Well, at that moment, the gut in us that, you know, the emotion in us says, let's sell all the stuff that's not doing well and buy the thing that's doing well. <laughs> yeah. That's wrong. <laughs> sell the thing that's doing well, a little bit of it, and re-diversify back to your original plan appropriate asset allocation. By doing this and repeating this over 20, 30, 40 years, you are slowly, continuously selling high, buying low. Next year, selling high again, buying low. Whatever does well, you're peeling off some of those earnings and putting them in places that has not done as well. And eventually those things come back around. That's how you, that is, that is the fundamental nature. That's the fundamental thing you do to, to participate, not get crushed, uh, but, you know, COVID hits, it goes down, and then it comes back up, right? Not any single thing. Okay. So, absolutely. I, those, those are three golden nuggets. Absolutely. You know? And it's so, uh, it's uh, very um, practical, right? Yeah. It's not, you know, it's and, and it's, it's. And there's a, it is a, it eliminates the fear because of the things that you can't control. I think that was one of the things you cannot predict what you can't control. So talk right. about that. That's, that's that part of the fear. I think that, you know, you can of that piece of it, but really it be discipline to go with your three is the emotion of, you know, of, of containing your emotions and stuff like that. That's a, I mean, it's a diversification is a, is something that people talk about even in the, in private investments with angels, you got to diversify and, you know, it's not, it's really, it's all very, very similar. So um, when you um, talk about with mindful money uh, and, and for the record for everybody that's uh, listening in, it's mindful dot money for the website it's amazing perfect mindful dot money is the website and uh, you can get the book through your website right uh, you can get their links there through it Lo no? the local local bookstore amazon that's where you get okay. the book all right and so um that's that's where you can reach out to jonathan and um connect up with uh his firm and get some you know, bounce some ideas or talk about, I guess you guys, you know, uh, explore, have exploratory conversations with people all the time. And you're yeah. a registered investment advisor, right? Correct. Yep. Right. Correct. So, so that also, for those that aren't familiar, difference between, uh, well, why don't you explain it? Difference between yeah, a registered investment advisor and stockbroker, for example, or a financial well, so planner. Yeah. First, there's, there's three things that we do. And so not everyone that comes to us fits the model of wealth management. And we used to either say, listen, we can't help you or, or refer them off to somebody that was new in the business and just growing their practice. And so would would take on pretty much any client. Um, and we've ceased doing that. So we actually have three, three ways people work with us. 
and the lowest tier ways, we, we actually provide educational courses to people. Um, so you can go to the website in, uh, under the services. There, there is a whole section of courses, and they're just there's 18 modules, and you can take one at a time. You can take you know a, a life stage course that's sort of early career, or a life stage course that's late career, or you can take all 18. That's fine, wh whichever way you want to do it. Um, and it's just basic education with a workbook to help you answer the questions for your own life, for yourself. So you don't need an advisor. You don't need someone to sell you a product. It's just it's good education. So that's sort of tier one. Uh, tier two would be we have digital services that we can we can pair with. We'll call it group therapy. So we do a we do a monthly um, uh, email followed by a monthly call where we'll say sort of like a scheduled maintenance approach to personal finance. So people can get our email and in the email we'll send out we'll say, okay, this month you want you to set your 401k contributions, check your credit report and do this on one other thing, check your, uh, your, your, you know, property casualty insurance next month. It'll be three, four different things. By the end of the year, you've looked at everything you need to look at for the year. Uh, and, and we do that on a regular basis. Uh, every month we do that and we can pair that with other digital services that we provide digital investment, digital portfolio, uh, digital planning, those kinds of things as well. And then that top tier is the, is where we do that one-on-one -on -one deep financial planning. Uh, but to your, to your question, the reason you'd use someone like us instead of, you know, a bank or a brokerage is we are fiduciaries. So all the things I'm talking about today are the things we put in practice, no matter what kind of money you have. Uh, we, we are always talking about how do we support clients, people to have better financial outcomes. We never get a commission. We, we always provide advice and provide, you know, uh, the, the thing that we'd like our parents to get from an advisor, that's what we want to give to the, our community and the people we work with, wherever they're coming to us in whatever tier, whatever uh, format they come to us. It's legal for a broker to sell you a product that is similar to another product, but pays them a larger commission and costs you more. So it's just really, really important to ask that, are you a fiduciary on this transaction? Because now they've got this hybrid I'm a fiduciary, except in this circumstance, right? So you, you want to find someone that's 100% fiduciary if, you've, if you're working with somebody at all. Yeah, Congress tried to change that, but I don't think it got all the way through. It got watered down, right? right. Uh, so there's this idea of uh, value investing. We've kind of talked about it now, but I want, you know, in the course of this, um, and it usually deals with roadmap of what, are you, what do you consider valuable or, or, or values like... Um, uh, what you hold dear, so to speak, right? You know, and um, versus the value of a discounted investment that's a low value versus the high value, okay? So so sometimes uh, I think there was a guy today on Bloomberg that was talking about value investing, which is the low, you know, getting it low or lower, looking for the deals, so to speak. So, you know, sometimes people, I did a, po a podcast not too long ago, an interview with uh, BizVision in um, UK about conscious investing. And this is where people just say, you know, the environment's important to me. So I'm going to invest in things that are environmentally conscious. And it could be the practices of the businesses that you're investing in, as well as the products that they provide. So you could still uh, do your diversity approach 
and be within both of those in the way that they operate and the way that they or what they deliver to the market. And so um, clarify for me, you know, what your world of value investing, how you define that. Oh, so, so there's, there's, we do, we do both of those two things you talked about. Um, okay. There's a, there is the academic literature that talks about where you get returns and, and this just makes sense, right? If you have a company that makes, that makes, you know, $5 per year, that's their profit. And you can, you can, or you have two companies, both that make $5 a year as profit. Would you rather own the one that you buy for $2 or the one that you have to pay $10 to receive, right? So buying more units of earnings or more units of book value for a lower price, that's just smart investing, right? Regardless, right, you always want to get more units of the thing you want, apples, tuna fish, you know, whatever the thing is, you want more of it for less price. Same is true in earnings and investing. At the same time, as long as you maintain broad diversification, it's, it makes perfect sense. There isn't a cost to being, in my opinion, again, there's research both ways on this, kind of depending on who does the research, uh, but uh, there's research both ways on, is there a cost to be conscious with how I'm investing, socially responsible, it's called ESG, environmental yes. social governance. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I do it personally and I recommend it for folks. Uh, and I, for our clients, we get, we let our clients choose how they want to invest. Uh, but the, the idea is, and there's two different ways to do this. There's a whole school of thought that says you eliminate the stuff that's bad. There's another school of thought that says you overweight the stuff that's good and you underweight the stuff that's bad. Um, and when you think about, I'm going to own diversification is important to me. I'm going to own a whole bunch of everything. Um, but I tilt towards things that are more socially responsible and away from things that are less socially responsible. As long as the data inputs on what that responsibility means are clean, that's you're kind of voting. You're kind of saying, Sure. We, I prefer as investor companies that are more socially responsible. Um, the other way is fine as well, where you eliminate. The problem is most of the places where you eliminate, it's also going to come with higher costs for the investor. You know, the, the, the management team that's doing elimination isn't just looking at data. They're also saying um, they're calling up the company and so it's, it's more management heavy. Uh, and, you know, we know that the index actually does a pretty good job of diversification and, and return creation. So the more management cost usually means less return in the investor's pocket. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you can do it with weighting. And that's how we recommend it is doing it with the weighting, uh, weighting schemes. Yeah. So I think that, you know, your premise of, you know, you can have a tremendous financial outcome, living a happy, meaningful life comes in, in, in two levels, right? There's the level that says, I feel comfortable that the uncertainties of life aren't going to affect my portfolio because I've applied the three, three golden nuggets, right? But then also how I choose to direct my money gives me a certain amount of happiness and joy because I know that I am choosing, I'm letting my, my, my dollars, the power of the purse uh, to, to direct and uplift and you know, uh, I recently just did a show on um, this idea of cancel culture, and it's really not. It's really the dollars and economic sense of what the market wants, what the market needs, and people choosing to spend their money that way based on their own value system itself. And so, so as we get ready to wrap up here, you have this um, mission, 
right, is to your personal goal to touch a million lives in 10 years with mindful money financial education course. So talk about, you know, it's mentioned that these courses you have, but you have some new finance courses coming out as well. These are them. They're brand new. Oh, they they're, out. Like, they're out now. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, there's, there's still one that's in the hopper that I'm working. I'm actually editing video on right now, but, um, but yeah, so they're, they're out there and they're live. So the, go, going back to the idea of, of consciousness and, and, okay. and doing the right thing and doing a good thing. I think one of the things that's really important in our world that's missing. Um, and this, I think this shows up in inequality numbers. Um, I think that there's people that are never told in their lives that they could start their own business, that they could be successful, that they that they have the capacity, and, and they're never they've never been empowered to save and invest. And so there's a there's a fear of it. And I think that's largely because we've never educated people. We've never actually taught people about basic financial concepts. Um, that shows up when you survey Americans. You know, something like I don't know what the numbers are off the top of my head. Sixty percent of people, you know, miss two out of three basic financial questions, and that's that's really kind of eye-opening or, or it should be. And so I want to provide, um, I said a million courses over the next 10 years uh, to people. And in my local neighborhood, you know, I'm in California, so we're giving it away. I've had, I've had uh, 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 the entire faculty and staff from the local school has been given a link and they're, and they're going through it. I've had, oh, nice. um, there's, a, there's a Buddhist meditation group I'm, I'm part of that's global. I've given them uh, access to it. Um, there is, there's a local, uh, small business, um, what do you call it? Incubator group that has, they take 25 businesses every three months and they walk them through a business start process. I, I've, I've given them access to this for free. So I'm, I'm wanting to give it away. It's also for sale on the website. I'm hoping some people will come and buy it to help me support giving it away. Right. That's the whole process. Um, but that's my give back when, when everything locked down, I recognize that I, I can work from home. I am incredibly lucky. Uh, I've done, you know, I had a great 2020, even though I couldn't see people and couldn't give hugs and all that kind of stuff. That's really important, but I did well financially. And so we started building these courses and literally I went, went live a week ago. Uh, the big one uh, that's coming up, hopefully end of the month. And that's the financial planning, do it yourself financial planning course. Okay. Very good. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground and it's been really uh, insightful for me uh, anything you want to add before we say our goodbyes? Uh, you know what? If, if, uh, if you go to the website, mindful.money, our social media is there. Uh, I'd love to connect with folks, LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever. I'm, uh, you know, we're looking for people to engage and, and educate and, and show them the path. Yes. Very good. Thank you so very much, Jonathan, for being on the Compassionate Capitalist show today. I think this has been uh, helpful for our audience and for those that are listening, you know, please comment, share, and do please go to mindful.money. You know, mindful.money, no comment there, mindful.money to get access to, you know, the new courses and learn more about that. And of course, my website is karenrands.co. Stay tuned for a little message after this. Thank you again, Jonathan. Onwards and upwards. Thanks, Karen. Thank you for listening to the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast Radio, where we encourage individual investment in entrepreneurs to create generational wealth and best practices for small businesses to succeed. Help us spread the word about compassionate capitalism by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues. The Compassionate Capitalist Podcast is available on most podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, 
Google Podcasts, and many more. In production for over 10 years, there are over 180 episodes available for your listening and educational pleasure. With over 130,000 downloads, this podcast is rapidly becoming the top podcast for investors and entrepreneurs to get the information they need to create generational wealth through entrepreneurism. This podcast is brought to you by the Business Power Tools, which offers an online collaborative environment for leadership teams to prepare business plans, marketing strategies, financial modeling needed to attract capital and scale a business. Also, Lindio as a entrepreneur's resource portal providing access to dozens of lenders offering short-term and long-term debt to help business owners manage their financial cash flow and growth capital needs. BizX, creating affordable advertising resources and other tools for entrepreneurs to succeed and create awareness and trust with their customer base. And Launch Funding Network, part of Cougarand Capital Holdings. It's a network of hundreds of angel investors, investor clubs and networks, venture capital firms, private equity funds, family offices, investment bankers, and lenders. Please visit karenrands.co to learn more about the Launch Funding Network and our sponsors and to sign up to get our Compassionate Capitalist Coffee Break and learn more about how we can help you succeed.